Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. <laughs> what do you mean the bank is out of money? Insolvent? You only have enough cash for the next three customers! Just a second here. No, no, I, I don't have your money here. It's in Bill's house and, and, and Fred's house. Hey, what the hell are you doing with my money in your house, Fred? <laughs> <laughs> This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to episode 21 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill, less extreme, and generally less angry conversation. So it's not every day that you read stories about bank runs, thank goodness for that, but it is, I guess it's every decade or so. And I have to admit, it's pretty scary to read about them. But it's also kind of an opportunity, maybe, that w- for us to realize how much we rely on the assumption of competence. You know, we live in this time when there is such manifest distrust of institutions. It really is a chronic problem. And this week, when we needed to believe that smart people were there to help and we needed smart regulators and smart people running banks... We realize that our assumptions that these people are generally pretty good might be wrong. And we also learn that our regular love affair with rich CEOs is almost always going to end badly. You know, the micro of this case, the tree that got it all started, the domino, is basically a badly run bank under insufficient rules. Being a successful bank, I guess, when you're printing money and Every investment that you make, it's a matter of taking money that you get for zero and charging interest of three, and that's how you you become a master of the universe. But with these low interest rates and a lot of money coming in, you know, at least this bank that operated in tech or a bank in signature that operated in Bitcoin, when they invested those in longer term and less liquid treasury instruments, when interest rates started going up, a couple of things happened. You know, these tech companies stopped doing well and they needed money to pay depositors. And suddenly, with the Fed driving up interest rates, they had these problems. So, reserves at the banks were not in the form that they needed and they have to get out of them. They have to take a haircut to do it. And a bank with, I guess, $12 billion in long term treasuries decides to sell them off all at once and take a $2 billion loss. Yeah, it winds up spooking a lot of people. And when a whole bunch of tech bros are impacted by that bank or know that bank, and they have big microphones and access to Twitter, I guess everyone gets freaked out, kind of like Homer Simpson did in that cold open. But there are a couple of things that now seem very obvious in in retrospect, you know, that these super rich people who howl about too much involvement by the government in the economy all suddenly start to wet their pants and demanding a bailout when things go sideways. It reminds me so much of the 
railroad disaster that we had not long ago. All these conservative small government types suddenly change their tune when something goes wrong. Also, it's not only super rich people, but these are super rich people who supposedly take risks for a living. These are tech guys. This is a tech bank. So these bankers who love a CNBC camera but are never really asked the tough questions, for them, this didn't seem like a terribly complicated thing to foresee. They invest in tech startups, which by definition are risky investments. One here in New York invested in and backed up Bitcoin. And are they really all that surprised that interest rates didn't stay at zero? This is not exactly an act of God. It wasn't like it took that much foresight to realize that one of the risks you might be taking is that interest rates might go up. And let's face it, to some degree, Congress did this. In 2018, again, kind of fighting the last war, they took banks that might have been impacted by tougher scrutiny, and they changed the rules to allow a bank like like Silicon Valley Bank, which had assets that if they would have exceeded $50 billion, would have triggered these, these more rigorous standards. They decided to take those caps off. And, you know, frankly, from 2017 to 2020, we saw 16 bank failures. I saw all kinds of Republicans saying, I, actually, it was the president's son, uh, President Trump's son saying, well, we didn't have any of these under Trump. Yeah, you had a bunch of them. And then we have the members of Congress who you would hope in moments like this would be smart enough to know the right things to say. And the chairman of the Oversight Committee, this guy Comey, that name is going to ring in my head forever, began by talking about this being something about a woke bank. And then in the middle of this crisis, his big news was he reached out and finally got Treasury to agree to release Hunter Biden records. This is what he was obsessed with at the time that banks were failing. But then again, even under the present rules and even under the rules that they had when Congress changed them, the regulators didn't do basic things like think about stress tests as interest rates rise. We're hearing that these same things affect many banks. How is it that bank regulators don't see the rise in interest rates and start to say, let's see how this is going to impact the financial system beyond just its impact on inflation? I mean, we have learned some lessons here, but you know, I'm not sure that these are lessons that really, I mean, maybe I didn't know them, maybe you, my listener, didn't know them, but it seems to me that someone whose job it is to make sure the banking system is secure should have thought through the impact of rising interest rates. And we also have to wonder whether banks who focus on one customer base, such as Silicon Valley Bank did and Signature Bank seem to have done more and more, that they don't need that. Perhaps they need to cust to just the, the way you and I are encouraged to diversify our investments, and just the way banks are encouraged to diversify theirs. Maybe they need to diversify their customer bases as well. This idea of having banks that rise and fall on one industry. Well, one industry can go through an extended bad period. We also seem to have learned again that yes, indeed, these banks are too big to fail. I did talk about bank failures. 16 bank failures between 17 and 20. But, you know, in that upper echelon, the top 20, 30 banks or so, it's pretty clear the government has to come in and bail them out. Now, whatever you want to call it, is it a taxpayer bailout? Is it not? I mean, the taxpayers did not bail out the investors in the bank. They bailed out the people that had money in the bank above $250,000. But it's pretty clear at moments like this that we are still in this dynamic that, frankly, we just won't let banks fail. 
remember, even if people that had their money in these banks, they were probably going to get them back. There are plenty of assets in these banks. But this idea that you got to swoop in right away and save them is more or less what the federal government reminded us again. And that is an echo of 2008. But I do wonder, though, you know, they say you shouldn't invest in anything more than $250,000 and that customers have to be sophisticated about where they should be banking. Was there any real way for even the most sophisticated reader of data and analytics to be able to see that these banks were failing? You had, I think a lot of investment banks had buy, you know, stock, stock advisory places had buy advice for these banks saying they were good investments. You had even, I think, the auditors for SVB, for Silicon Valley Bank, said that it was in good shape. To say that the customers have to understand this, no, that's what we need government for. That's what we need the regulators for. But a question, a couple of questions I don't know the answer to is what do we do about these not real banks, these shadow banks, the Black Rocks, the Apollos, these people that are doing effectively big institutional lending but are not regulated by the banking system? Sure, they're uninsured, but if it comes down to what kind of contagion there is going to be, what are we going to do about those guys? Are they the next ones? I mean, they got a lot of real estate holdings. If you're concerned about commercial real estate, that's where you might see problems next. Another question that I don't have the answer to, to be very honest, is the role of Twitter and social media and all of these things. You know, you've got these guys, these tech bros, these guys who are famous for whatever, who have these microphones and they have the ability to turn something that might be an orderly dealing of government and dealing with a crisis. You've got no time to do it because people are on Twitter shouting at the top of their lungs. We saw that with Ackman. We saw that with Mark Cuban. We see it with these guys. You know, not that they're smart, but they have big access to information. And basically, this turned into a run on Twitter. This turned into a run that got in a problem. Let's put it that way. They turned into a run on Twitter. They played the role of Bart Simpson in this process. And I don't know the answer. I don't know what you do when Twitter has that much influence. You'd hope that they would be responsible people in these sectors, but apparently not. So what does this mean? What does this mean for average Joes? What does it mean for regular consumers, people in the middle class, those struggling to make it? Well, it's probably going to mean bank fees are going to go up. They're going to pass along whatever fees they're getting to, to do this bailout. I'm sure there'll be average people have a little more sensitivity about the benefit of centralized banking and regulation, and maybe crypto will continue not to look. That's like it's a great thing. But one thing that the average Joe should be pretty ticked off at is to see these venture capital guys, these masters of Silicon Valley, these tech guys who spent the last year pummeling the idea of letting average Americans retire ten dollars or $15,000 of their debt. And these are the same guys demanding that the federal government come in and bail out these banks. I think that that kind of speaks for itself. And after all these types of things happen, all these kind of big news events, you can always count on that there'll be no shortage of people going on the radio and on MSNBC and CNBC and opining about them like they know. <laughs> Sounds like me. And we'll see you on the other side of the break for Listener Mail. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So today on Listener Mail, we're going to dip into a version of our mailbag. As you know, each week we like to address the concern of a person who writes in or reaches out to me at, at Rep Wiener or at WienerWABCRadio.com. No, what is it? It's WienerWABCRadio. I think it's WienerWABCRadio at gmail.com and sometimes Facebook. And anyway, I take a question or two. And we do this in a more formal setting on the radio when we have the radio show and callers call in. Today we have a little bit of a hybrid. This is a question that came in from, I can't think of anyone, anyone that I'm a bigger fan of than this guy. Dershowitz. Professor Dershowitz, these, these videos becoming public doesn't mean in any way that defendants didn't have the right to this information. What, what makes you th- I mean? We have every reason to believe that the shaman had access and his lawyers had access to this information. Just because the public hasn't seen it doesn't mean that the lawyers haven't seen it. Isn't that right? Well, I can... Yes, but I can tell you that the lawyers and the defendants have been denied some of this information. Some of the information Bingo. was given. So, yes, that was me. That was on the Great Cats and Cosby Show, and that person was Professor Alan Dershowitz, who was representing someone in, in one of these January 6th cases. And what that question was about, I mean, it's probably self-explanatory, that Tucker Carlson got access through a deal with Kevin McCarthy for this unfettered access to 44,000 hours of videotape, which he then began to use to try to discredit the idea that this was an insurrection, it was a riot. And this idea came up, well, oh my goodness, this video shows people didn't riot at all. And I was making the point that, putting aside that, frankly, this was taken out of context, but that this information was available to lawyers and I asked Alan Dershowitz that, and he said that it was not available. Well, in answer to this question, let me just make a couple of preliminary points. One, that as I, as we sit here on Wednesday morning, Carlson has stopped playing those tapes and stopped talking about this case because I think he understands that it's not a good look to be taking this thing with 140 police officers, you know, to kind of downplay this was pretty outrageous. And also... Now the Justice Department started to make clear some of these things because there was a case, a guy named Pozzola, who is charged in this case. He went to court to make the same argument that Alan Dershowitz tried to make in his answer to me, that this video was not available, makes things different, that it wasn't, it's exculpatory. You heard, you heard another of the panelists in that show say bingo, that when, you know, say that this was not available. Well, this is what the Justice Department filed in one of these cases that tried to, that tried to have this, this information, have their cases thrown out because this information wasn't available to them. This is a quote from a filing of the Justice Department. The CCTV footage is core evidence in nearly every January 6th case, and it was produced en masse, labeled by camera number and by time to all defense counsel in all cases, with the exception of one CCT camera where said footage totaled approximately 10 seconds and implicated an evacuation route. All of the footage played on television was disclosed to defendant Pizzola 
and defendant Chandley, that's the guy that we were talking about in that interview, by September 24th, 2021. The final 10 seconds was produced in Global Discovery to all defense counsel on January 23rd, 2023. So the answer to that question that I asked is, was all of this video made available to defendants so they can go before juries and say, oh, no, it was peaceful, or they can make the case that police officers let me in. They all had it. The defense lawyers for all these defendants all had it as far back as September 24, 2021. That is quite some time ago. So while we can say that, okay, that Fox News wants to try to make this an issue and want to follow President Trump down this rabbit hole, and try to dishonor what happened that day. They can go ahead and do it. But the idea that the Justice Department hadn't provided all of this video to all of the defendants is just not true. But as I said, after that first dump and after the reaction that it got, perhaps they're giving second thought to even going down this path any further. I, for one, am all in favor of this video coming out. I'm in favor of it being given to everyone universally, made available to to all the networks, made available to the public, obviously with certain steps taken to make sure that nothing is dangerous that is released. But I think the more context, the more information about January 6th, the better. The only way you're going to fight back against the crazy conspiracy theories and the people who want to minimize what happened that day is more information. It's not going to make them go away. I've learned that by now. But it will at least give us the access to the full context so not just one person at Fox News has it. So feel free to reach out to me in the future if you'd like to participate in the show, but in the form of asking a question, it's wiener, W-A-B-C at gmail.com. It's at Rep Wiener, and you can always reach me on Facebook as well. Really do appreciate you being, being along. If you like what you hear, share it with your neighbors, share it with your friends. That's the way people get to know about it. And we'll be back with another episode next week and also this weekend. If you're near a radio or you're near a computer, the middle, 2 o'clock on WABC at wabcradio.com at 770 on your AM dial. And then Left versus Right, a show I do with Curtis Sliwa immediately thereafter at 3 o'clock. I really do appreciate how much support you've given me. I think this weekend, in fact, is my 52nd. I think it's my one-year anniversary. And so I'm appreciative for all the support of that as well. And this marks the end of The Middle Unplugged.